I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session We Need to Talk About Trolling, featuring Maxine Benneba-Clark, Ginger Gorman, Sarah Hanson-Young and Julia Shaw in conversation with Tracy Spicer, recorded live at the 2019 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Thank you so much and welcome everyone. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land upon which we meet, the Araqual and Bunjalung people, and also acknowledging that the issues we're talking about in this session, trolling, abuse, harassment, violence, are experienced exponentially more frequently by people in marginalised communities, particularly by women and children of colour. I'd also like to give a bit of a warning that we'll be dealing with some serious issues, even though I know some of my... All of my co-panellists have ripping senses of humour as well. We'll try to keep it with a bit of light and shade, but there will be some issues that might be traumatising or triggering for you. Please feel free to leave the room if that happens. I'm going to introduce each of these stellar women one by one. First of all, please welcome the author of The Making of Evil and the Memory Illusion, Dr Julia Shaw. To my right, the author of Growing Up African in Australia and The Hate Race, among many others, and also being a stellar poet. If you haven't read The Hate Race, race out and buy it. It's one of the most important books I've read in the last 10 years. Please welcome Maxine Beneva clark You'll know the woman to my left from the political realm, but she's also written a wonderful book called On Guard, which is incredibly, it's a real rallying cry and I congratulate you on that. Please welcome Sarah Hanson-Young. I'm going to get a little bit emotional now introducing the lovely woman on my far left, Ginger Gorman, who has embedded herself with Predator Trolls for four to five years to bring a global first book, Troll Hunting. She's put herself at great risk. She's a lovely, beautiful human being. And I congratulate you on your work. I worry about you. But thank you for being here. Ginger Gorman. Maxine, you write in your brilliant memoir that the cumulative effect of racist remarks is like a poison. It eats away the very essence of your being. As we discussed earlier, you experience the intersection of racist and sexist trolling in real life and online. How does it manifest online particularly and how does that affect the way you are able to go out into the world and also to make a living? Yeah, I think for me, you know, I mean, I grew up, as most of us did, in the pre, you know, Twitter and Instagram and social media time. And so I'm used to trolling in real life, you know, in the schoolyard, on the street, and even these days, you know, on the street, particularly I live in Melbourne's West, where a lot of kind of media hysteria is whipped up against people of African appearance. And so for me, trolling has always been, um, you know, I'm a writer as well. I don't I don't do a lot of, a huge lot of media appearances, so it's, it's been mainly something that comes, you know, when I do an episode of Q&A or when I do the drum or I feel like with writing I've carved out this space for myself where I can actually speak to the people who have opinions like mine, maybe are wavering and maybe in the middle. Um, and I think in a lot of senses, you know, a racist is not going to read my book, <laughs> you know, so it kind of cuts out that element. But I do find it really limits the things that I'm prepared to do in public life, Mm. uh, the online trolling. Have you found it's become worse as your profile has grown with the books that you've written and your appearances on panels? Is it getting worse? 
Yeah, I think it's definitely something that, you know, the more you pop your head up above the barricade, you know, the more you're fired at. And um, I worry as well for, you know, one of my books is on the, the Year 12 syllabus in Victoria and I have a lot of young women of colour saying, how does it feel to write things like this? What if people disagree with you? They're already thinking about whether or not they're actually prepared to do that kind of work. Um, and so, you know, while you want to represent, you know, I think all of us in some sense want to represent women or represent marginalised people, um, it's balancing the desire to pr pr provide that representation with the, the trade-off, the personal trade-off. Exactly. And this is not only an issue of personal safety, as you said, it's an issue of blocking more women from getting into power, particularly in a realm like mm. politics. Sarah, you've experienced it immensely, massively. And you said you've you've got some more uh, comments from just last week. Uh, if you could take us through those, if that's all right with you, and talk through how much of a deterrent this is from young women entering politics. Look, I, you know, firstly, um, let me say, I, I don't know how someone like Maxine, how you would um, manage that, the extra um, um, attack that comes because of the colour of your skin, because of your um, uh, your background. And being a young woman in politics, so I entered politics when I was um, 25. Um, I was, uh, you know, naive but feisty and uh, I was passionate about immigration. So being a young woman, passionate about immigration, I also thought we should have same-sex marriage in this country, so a bunch of people didn't like that either. Um, and I was a single mum and so there was kind of this trifecta of things that uh, people really didn't like. Um, but actually, more than that is that I had an opinion um, and that I was willing to stand up and speak out. And I still am, of course. Um, when I look at the types of uh, the culture in um, the way social media in particular has um, developed over time, in one way, as a politician, we have more direct access to our constituents than ever before. And for democracy, I actually think that's really important. Um, I think it's really, really important. Um, but the dark side of it, um, which I'm sure um, Ginger and Julia um, you know, are, are quite expert in, is that it's not just um, a genuine one, uh, two-way conversation. It is um, the trolling becomes abusive. It's attacks. It uh, undermines your ability to actually get your message out and to speak to other people. What I find um, upsetting uh, often is that if I put something up on Facebook to tell people what it is that I'm doing and other people, and some people like it and get engaged and they want to have a genuine conversation, they're put off the moment the trolls come in. Mm. And so actually that democratic process is being undermined by the trolls, regardless of what happens to me, regardless of the attacks on, on me or my staff or, or my daughter. Um, but I just thought, Tracy, because um, we talk about trolling, but I thought maybe we should put some of this into context. Um, Last week, there was um, uh, a well-known former politician, um, David Lionhelm. Um, uh, I say former with the most emphasis I possibly can. <laughs> um, look, he sent out a tweet um, that said, this is a frightening statistic. 25% of women in this country are on medication for mental illness. That's scary. It means 75% are running around untreated. Um, and so, you know, like, he's clearly an idiot. Um, uh, 
but the impact of this is that he posted this just on his uh, Twitter feed and for days afterwards, didn't me- he didn't even mention me, by the way, but days afterwards I have been inundated with tweets and emails and comments saying, please, please, go take your medication. Sarah Hansen Young on medication yet. Dumb cunt. Immigration issues. 55 illegal immigrants and I still can't find a husband with a picture of me. Um, so there's, you know, it goes on and on. Um, this one's funny. Um, an Aussie icon. It's a picture of a wombat. I was doing wombat stuff last week. Um, I'm the immigration uh, portfolio holder and, and Crown Casino have been out taking their high rollers out to hunt wombats. Um, this is a picture of a wombat and it says, uh, eats, roots and, eats roots and leaves. And then there's a picture of me. Overeats, doesn't root and won't fucking leave. Um, so, you know, it's, it's silly stuff. It's, but what it does, I think, um, is that it, it undermines the ability for us to actually use this medium as a genuine process of uh, consultation, of uh, democratic participation. And, of course, it's, um, it's not nice, uh, but politics isn't nice anyway. I'm not too worried about that. When it gets to the issue of um, death threats and rape threats and those types of things, um, that's when you know it's, it's uh, lifted a level. And it silences marginalised voices and women's right. voices. Um, I'm so sorry that you have to put up with that as part of your day-to-day job. I mean, I remember when you read out those mean tweets a couple of years ago when the spotlight was starting to be shone on, on trolling mm. and I thought, gosh, you're laughing about it, but how, how does it affect you emotionally? Um, look, I've, I've learnt to have to laugh it off um, because otherwise I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. And I want to get out of bed. I want to be able to get on and do my job. And um, I love being a politician. I think I've got the best job in the world, actually. Um, I love it. And I'm, I, I, I'm not going to let these trolls uh, take that away from me. Mm. Um, so... <laughs> I, so laughing is... Uh, Humour is great for, you know, disempowering those who want to oppress you. Um, but also I think it's, you know, th- there is a seriousness about it. And so I have, I mean, I have a pretty thri- high threshold of things that I let slide or my staff let slide. I, I do feel for the staff a lot because they're the ones who often open the emails and open the mail and take the phone calls and um, have to monitor the Facebook page. Um, and we talk about it very openly in the office. We kind of, we, there, is a, there is a nutter file um, which, you know, at the end of the week we kind of go through and have a good laugh. Um, but the, the high threshold of, yes, when it's, a, when it's a death threat or a rape threat, which are more often um, uh, than, you, than people would realise, um, at least we get at least one of them a week. Um, and so those things are reported to the police. Um, I must say that I had a th- threat against my daughter last year that was very serious. Um, and that was following me standing up and calling out um, the sexism I experienced in the parliament. And it was things like, uh, you know, if you don't shut up, we're going to come and rape your daughter. It started like that. And then it went to phone calls. And this one person had been ringing um, and calling my office and he knew my daughter's name. He said he had a picture of her. He knew what school she went to. 
that was all a bit scary. Um, I reported it to the police and, you know, at first I think often this stuff is like, oh, just, they're just crazies. They're not going to do anything. I said, no, I want this investigated and I really had to push hard. And I thought that he would just be some lonely person in, you know, the you know mum and dad's kind of basement. Um, turns out he was a New South Wales policeman. Mm. So that has taught me actually when it is at a certain level, no, you've got to follow it and the police, you have to push the police to act. That brings us to the very important point of who are making these threats. And this is something that both Dr Julia Shaw and Ginger Gorman have looked at. First of all, Dr Shaw, Ginger discovered in her book that many trolls have a strong sadistic streak. And you write about everyday sadism in The Making of Evil, uh, Making Evil. From your research, what kind of person report, uh, repeatedly threatens someone online? Who are they? Unfortunately, I think I agree that it can be anyone. Um, so it's not just lonely people in their basements. I do think there's an element of loneliness often attached to it, but of course anyone can be lonely no matter how much power they might have. Um, in terms of everyday sadism, uh, so in my book, well, also first of all, uh, unfortunately I can relate to all of this. So I'm sure every one of us has had threats against our life or rape threats. Um, the worst, I think, are the pylons. When someone reports, so tweets something like that they would like to rape you or kill you. And then other people go and agree and they sort of say, me too. And, and sort of there's this like escalation where there's more and more people going. And that's when you need to shut things down, you need to shut down comment feeds, you need to report things. Um, but in terms of the people who do those things, um, yeah, I mean, all of us are a bit sadistic. So my book, Making Evil, is on um, how every one of us is capable of great harm and how we need to check in with ourselves more often and understand our own dark sides. And so it's actually, it's a call for empathy, it's a call for humanizing, it's a call for um, not monsterizing those who do harm, because I think the problem when we use words like evil um, is that we almost immediately are dehumanizing those who we think are deserving of that label. And I think as soon as we use that label, we also are capable of great harm ourselves. And so that dehumanizing of others leads to, I think, the worst side of humanity. And so we should always, always, always push against that. So whether it's a troll who's threatening to rape you or um, a person in real life who's done something terrible, it's we just need to be very careful not to dehumanize those who dehumanize others. Um, in terms of who, um, again, it could be anyone. So according to research on sadism, um, there's uh, levels of sadism, and all of you will have engaged in some of it. I'm going to go a tiny bit lighter now in the conversation. <laughs> doesn't sound like sadism as an entry point for lightness, but here we are. Um, so there's, there's little things that more of us are familiar with, like uh, passive aggression. So the people who we're most likely to be sadistic towards are our loved ones. Um, and that can be things like not doing things, so on purpose not, for example... Uh, cleaning up or doing or, or doing something that our partner has asked us to do because we know that it's going to cause some sort of psychological repercussions for that individual. It's a, it's a minor type of violence, right, of, of psychological harm. Um, and uh, according to research on long-term couples, um, more than half of us will engage in some form of sadistic behavior towards our partners in a light way. <laughs> Baby sadism. Um, <laughs> And, and it seems from this literature and from the neuropsychological literature that our brains are built for sadism, probably because we've had to kill to survive for a very long time. 
Um, so we've had to kill animals to survive. We've had to kill humans to survive. And so there's this bit of our brains that seems to cope <laughs> surprisingly well with this um, and maybe even cherish the schadenfreude, right? The sort of when your enemies or people you really want to troll, you know, has his, his or her, has their comeuppance. You, you take joy, pleasure in their downfall because they feel like the enemy. Um, and so, again, there's that, that piece. So we need to be careful not to assume that only people who are doing sort of really terrible things are, are, are capable of sadism. Um, so, so I guess, yeah, maybe that answers the question. Oh, yeah. Uh, your books are both fascinating, actually. So thank you for all of your research in this area. Ginger, take us through the spectrum of trolls yeah. who you met through your process. And I also want to talk about the cost of trolling because often it gets labelled as kind of white women whining and, you know, that we should pull our big girl panties out. But it actually has a huge economic cost. So uh, trolling is not one thing. And one of the problems that we have is if you are a woman in a domestic violence situation who's being predator trolled by a former partner and you go down the police station and say, I'm being trolled, they say, stay off the internet, love. And in, these are often people who are getting credible threats of violence. So trolling is a spectrum. Um, does anyone know what a Rickroll is? Has anyone been Rickrolled here? Where you accidentally uh, click on a link of Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up. Um, so that is a kind of trolling and it's very funny. Um, so that's one end of the spectrum. And trolling can have a great um, importance. So there are some kinds of um, joking trolling, making political statements, pranking the media, and they make important points. So at one end we've got this kind of light-hearted stuff that's funny and fun and it moves up and it may have a bit of a social purpose and then you start getting um, somewhere in the middle you get this more um, violent threats and things that have no real um, impact. And then at the very far end you get what I call predator trolling which is um, people who are setting out to do real life harm, psychological, physical or both. So the Christchurch killer was a predator troll and he was very embedded in those communities and my book is really dealing with this far end um, and it's linking predator trolling to terrorism, to murder, to incitement, to suicide, to very, very serious crimes, lots of links with domestic violence. And what I realised when I started writing about trolling, so um, my family and I got really serious death threats in 2013 because of some stuff I'd broadcast and published on the ABC. And, you know, like Sarah, when my kids were threatened, I mean, that was one of the most terrifying um, experiences of my life. And I did think, have my, you know, has my job as a journalist just put my kids at risk? Um, after that, I went out to sort of, like, investigate who these guys were and I've spent five years really kind of embedded in their communities. But what happened was people started to write to me and cyber hate targets and they would be talking to me about the complete destruction of their lives, like I've lost my job, my reputation has been wrecked online, I've had to move house, um, you know, like Tracy is someone that's had very serious trolling, she's had to leave her house at various points. Um, I um, have had to see doctors, I'm on PTSD medication, I've had to go to court, I've had to pay for childcare while I'm in court, I've had to travel interstate, like so... The, these people were describing absolute destruction of their lives and the thing was that they all said, the stories are very different, they're all saying, I couldn't get help, nobody would help me. And I thought, what is the thing here that is going to stop people like Andrew Bolt saying, pull your big girl panties up when you have someone like Sarah who's getting threats against the kids and the thing is money. <laughs> so I realised if I could put a number on this that I could get people to listen 
And so I rang a bunch of economists and begged them, like, please help me get this data. And most of them said, shut up, what's Facebook? And then, <laughs> um, but the Australia Institute, Richard Dennis, thank you, Richard, for being a visionary, said, uh, this seems really important. We're going to get the data for you. So I paid them bargain basement price and they did nationally representative polling for me. Um, and the upper cost of cyber hate, just taking into account time off work and sick days and medication is $3.7 billion. It doesn't take into account police costs, court costs, all those other things. So really that is just a red flag. That's just the start of it. And uh, our polling found that 8.8 .8 million adult Australians have been affected in some way by um, online harassment and 1.3 million have been affected by this extreme cyber hate. So the idea that it is just white feminist whining is not true. And also someone like Maxine is subject to what I started to call minority stacking. So with the trolls, they police discourse with themselves uh, at the top of the food chain. They think that they are being displaced and they are mainly young white men and they feel very threatened and they attack anyone they consider other. So if you are a, say, a gay black woman, good luck because they stack the minorities up against you. One of the other arguments that is part of the backlash against talking about trolling and its impact on minorities is what about free speech? Mm. Anyone can take this? Who wants to talk about the free well, speech argument? <laughs> what I say to this is often, you know, I mean, these guys are free speech absolutists, so they think you should be able to say what you want. <laughs> First of all, nobody has absolute free speech in offline and you shouldn't because the thing is... I can't get sexually harassed at work. I can't have my kids threatened in the supermarket. Why is it okay online? Mm. It, it's not. Mm. And the same, um, the same restraints that we have in offline life, they exist for a reason. They must exist online, mm. you know. Because the thing is, like, my, so my family um, fled the Holocaust. A number of them were gassed in the Holocaust. The Holocaust didn't start with murder. It started with hate speech. And these crimes, like... The Christchurch killing, that started with hate speech, that started with a manifesto, that started with all this stuff online. So the trolls say words on the internet never hurt anyone, but they are using words as a weapon to hurt us. So it's bullshit, you know, that we free speech, absolute free speech doesn't exist and it doesn't exist for a reason because when your free speech hurts me, that's where it ends. Well, I think you, I mean, Free speech is one thing. You don't have the freedom to abuse and mm. to um, mm -hmm. uh, assault uh, people. And you're right. I think there is a um, there is this uh, argument that oh well, whatever goes online happens online. It has no other implications um, until, of course, it hurts that person. Um, and I must say, I think uh, a lot of these people who kind of purport the free speech argument look at you know the moment you kind of hit back. <laughs> um, they have the most fragile glass jaws. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, whether they are the more professional trollers, as I call them, you know, kind of the Andrew Bolts of the world or um, others, um, or indeed uh, just the kind of individuals who are operating on their own, um, you know, the kind of keyboard cowards. And a few years ago, I made a decision to start kind of um, hitting back, and I just, you know, would screenshot. 
the email or the, the, the tweet and I'd uh, retweet it. Now, I couldn't possibly do all of them because um, I don't want my own feed full of this stuff. <laughs> I actually want to get my message out. But every now and again, uh, if there's one that's uh, particularly pointed, I, I do it. And when I first started, I had these people coming in saying, how dare you, this is a breach of this person's privacy. <laughs> I, was, I was like, um, sorry. Uh, you know, the moment you, you tweeted at me and called me a C-U-N-T was the moment you forfeited your right to privacy as far as I'm concerned. Um, and just one quick story, Tracy. Um, there was this... Um, a guy who had sent an email to the office, he'd, we'd watched him on Facebook for some time and finally sent an email to the office and uh, it was very rude, lots of expletives, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, brain dead, uh, brain dead cunt or slut or something was what he'd signed off with. Can't remember what the issue was. I think it was, you know, uh, something to do with tax cuts but somehow because I was fat and I was a slut and I was a cunt that that was actually the issue. Um but he sent it from his work email um, <laughs> and, and had the kind of the signature at the bottom and it was this, there was this company in uh, the Barossa Valley and I just, I don't do this very often and my staff really weren't very happy with me but I just, I saw it come up into the email and I thought I'm just going to ring this guy. So I pick up the phone, I dial the number and I said, oh, and he answers and he says, oh, Barry here? I said, um, I said, Barry do you think it's a good idea to send these types of emails from your work account? <laughs> and he goes, who am I talking to? I said, Sarah Hansen Young. And he's like, oh, oh, well, you threatening me? <laughs> and I, I said, mate, I'm just saying I don't think this is a very good idea, not very wise. Anyway, I hung up the phone and um, the next day I get an email from a journalist at The Australian and they said is it true that you harassed a such and such? And I, I rang this journalist back and I said, mate, if you want to publish what happened and his business name and his name, go for it. The article never ran. So. <laughs> that is very impressive. Um, Maxine, one of the other counter arguments that's often used is, well, if you're being trolled or harassed, just go to the police. That's why we have a justice system. But we know that that's incredibly difficult, particularly if you're a person of colour. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about this before the panel and, um, you know, I guess I wanted to, yeah, talk about the way that trolling disproportionately affects, you know, people with intersecting identities. Mm. And I think, you know, firstly that comment that this outrage about trolling is, is um, you know, middle-class white women getting upset, I don't think that's true, but I also think there is a different bar depending on what your identity is. Mm. I mean, I'm very unlikely to report someone trolling me with a comment I've heard five times that week on the street because it just doesn't even register. So that idea of people who are used to being trolled in person all the time having this extraordinary resilience, I don't even... You know, people say to me, do you get trolled? And I say, oh, not much. But when I think about it, I do. It's just that it barely registers at this stage. But, um, yeah, Tracy was asking me earlier whether I've reported anything to the police ever. I mean, I've never had a direct death threat. Um, there are things that I've thought, oh, you know, that's kind of going a little bit far. Um, but I wouldn't go... Uh, there were very few things I would report to the police. Um, I live in Melbourne's West where the police have, you know, been known for profiling people of African appearance. I have a very different, I think, perception of law enforcement 
although we heard from um, Sarah's story that, you know, law enforcement cannot always be trusted. But, you know, my my daughter came home the other day and said, oh, our, our, my classmate's dad, who's a policeman, came in to talk to us and to tell us, you know, that if anything ever happens to us, to trust the police. <laughs> go to the police. I said, don't ever go to the police, <laughs> ever. You know, and I tell them, you know, my kids are mixed. I tell them if you ever are arrested, don't call me, you know, call your grandma, call your dad, call a white member of your family, don't call your mum. So, you know, these are things that kind of not just at the interface of trolling but at the cost and what kind of safety net there there is depending on whether a person of colour, whether you have a disability, you know, um, what your identity is, the cost can be extraordinarily high. Which speaks to that huge power imbalance within society. Um, Dr Julia Shaw, you write about two-faced tech and how we need to bring in the nerds to fix this. Can you extrapolate on that? Sure. So um, I I think a book on evil in the 21st century needs to include a chapter on cybercrime. I find that there's too many discussions around evil and crime without that omit this, uh, including criminology departments, psychology departments, forensic psychology. I never once during my studies had even a single lecture on cybercrime, which I think is astonishing given that most crime now happens online. Mm. Um, It's leaving us completely underprepared from a scientific perspective and from a uh, law enforcement perspective certainly as well in terms of tackling these kinds of issues. Um, So I think tech both uh, places a huge risk. Actually, as you were talking, I uh, I kept thinking about um, this, this theory that actually is from the late 70s, which is one of the only criminological theories that seems to hold up in terms of explaining um, why cybercrime, basically, full stop. And it's routine activity theory. Um, and it's this idea that in order for crimes to happen, you need three things. One is a motivated offender. Second is a suitable target, so a victim, an easy victim, ideally. And the third, and you need all three of these things, ideally, uh, the third is a lack of capable guardians. Now, the internet definitely is missing number three, uh, has basically no guardians, um, and because of the internation, and there's lots of reasons, of course, for why that's the case. Because it's evolved incredibly quickly, because it's across borders, because our police are underprepared technologically and otherwise, because we still don't see crimes online as the same as offline. There's so many reasons, um, but it's time to get our to get our shit together on this front. Um, <laughs> Um, The the second thing in terms of uh, trolling, uh, so I I look a little bit at the research on trolling, not not nearly as much as as some some of the other members on the panel, Um, but in terms of the the psychology behind it, there is some research on looking, essentially trying to simulate situations where people might troll. And so... um, there's some studies where people are exposed to certain kinds of information, to things like Twitter, Twitter posts, and then they're asked their opinions on certain things, like presidential candidates. So you're shown a bunch of tweets about lots of different topics, and then you're shown a couple, maybe just one or two, suggesting that Hillary Clinton, this, is a, this was obviously a few years ago, but that Hillary Clinton was, and then it would say something negative, or it would say something positive. And then you were asked a couple of minutes later about your opinion on various issues, including Hillary Clinton. And it had an almost immediate impact on how people felt and talked about uh, the things that were mentioned in these tweets. Um, now, the, in terms of actually engaging with people and in, engaging in violence towards people online, um, there's also research in terms of sort of why 
So there's some research that actually came out after my book, which I'm really sad about because it couldn't be written into the book, um, suggesting that according to one poll, three to five percent of people self-identify as trolls. Mm. Um, I actually had someone come up to me after a talk once and say, I, I, a young white man, in fact, um, he, he seemed super friendly. He came up and said, I, I am a troll. <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> this is a good start. Um, but it's, it's basically, it's a sort of, uh, so, so the way that, psychologically speaking, I think we can help to explain why it's easy, why the threshold is lower online than in person. Because we know that, like him, he would almost certainly never go to someone on the street and say the same things that he's probably writing online. He just wouldn't. And that's because your online experience is flat. You have a two-dimensional, at best, experience of humans. So when you have research combining information with pictures of people, like actual photos of their faces, people are slightly more careful with how they deal with those people. If you just have an avatar, they're less careful. If you just have the information, they're even less careful. If you have a physical 3D person in front of you who has you know, a response as well, so things like emotions that you you have the consequences of in front of you, um, people are more reserved. And so it's that stripping away of the human experience that really contributes to our ability to overcome that inherent threshold that luckily most of us have, because most of us have empathy, most of us feel bad when others feel bad, and online you just don't have that the same way. Let's talk solutions now for about 10 minutes and then I'll open it to questions. And I guess it's multifaceted. It's parenting, it's legislation, and there are technological solutions as well. Let's start with legislation, Sarah, because you're a politician. What do we need to do? Look, I, th I think we do need to grapple with this idea that the online space um, has been um, fairly um, hands-off. Uh, we can't regulate it. Those big tech companies, whether it's Facebook or Google... Um, others, you know, are, are too big for, for intervention. Um, I actually do think we have to break that down. Um, the, the example that Ginger gave about if someone was abusing you in the supermarket, there would be a consequence of that. Um, so I, I think uh, politicians have been very slow to grapple with this and mm. look, you know, without offending too many of my colleagues, you can, it's easy to see why. They're not actually engaged um, at the same uh, rate and the same level. Um, you know, many of my colleagues only got on Twitter a few years ago. Um, so they're kind of grappling with it themselves. Um, I do think, however, many of the um, issues in relation to um, cyber safety, particularly when it comes to kids, constituents are now, and people in the community are now demanding um, action. Mm -hmm. And I think it's through parents' concerns that is really going to drive um, the legislative response. Mm, definitely. Oh, I, I mean, I could talk for an hour on this. I sat in the Senate hearings um, last year into cyberbullying and uh, I watched all the big tech companies refuse to answer any questions about how they deal with cyber hate, how it's resourced, how it's triaged. These companies are nation states. They have 2 billion users, I think, on Facebook. And if you put Facebook and Twitter together, they've got more users than China and India. They're making billions of dollars from our data and they have no duty of care. Not to mention not paying their taxes. Yeah, they don't pay tax. <laughs> I, I went to Facebook nine months before the Christchurch massacre and I said, this product is not safe. And they said, it is safe. I said, no, it's not. People are getting raped and killed on this product. And uh, 
obviously then, you know, the massacre was broadcast on Facebook Live. It, it is absolutely baffling to me why, as a community, we are not holding these companies to account. Like, can you imagine if a car company put a car on the road with no seatbelts and people were getting killed in the, those products? It just wouldn't happen, you know. And it's like they've been missing in action. I mean, they have been bleating about fixing cyber hate since at least 2006 and they're not. I mean, my book is full of people, dead people, who have been shot and killed. Um, you know, Sherelle Moody, the journalist, got her horse killed because of cyber hate. Her dog was given acid. Um, you, know, you know, there's lots of suicides. Why are we not willing to hold these companies to account? I, I just find it absolutely incredible that as a community we're totally fine with that. Mm. Agreed. Julia, you mentioned before that the technology companies are the solution to this. So what are some of the practical things that are happening with online tools? Yeah, so I, I think I, I disagree slightly here, um, where I think a loads of other kinds of companies also kill people all the time. Um, so that isn't reserved to tech companies. It's just that with tech companies, again, we're back to this issue of, well, this isn't real crime. It's not really our fault. It was just words. Um, whereas, you know, if you're a pharma company, well, that's obvious that it was actually your medication or, or something else. Um, now, with uh, tech, so I, I actually co-founded a startup two years ago, um, an AI tool to help people report workplace harassment and discrimination. It's called Spot, and you can access it at talktospot.com. Um, and it's a, an AI chatbot that walks you through what happened so that you can preserve what happened. And uh, it, basically, it's a memory interview. And you can then turn your memory into evidence that's timestamped, that's securely signed, and that you can then share even anonymously with your employer. Um, now, uh, we, with, we work with employers to make sure that basically communication doors are open. So our, mon our money comes from organizations we work with who then make a better reporting system and, and manage the reports better on the other side. So even if people report things anonymously, they can respond. Um, in terms of fighting, I think one of the reasons why tech companies are based, they, they still don't have ethical committees, most of them. Uh, they, if they do, they're sort of like a patchwork panel of people who also do other things quite often. Um, our governments are only just starting to have these conversations about ethical tech. Um, I, I mean, I think part of the issue is that law enforcement models that we've had in the past just don't work. Mm -hmm. And government structures to, to enforce it don't work with us. But I actually think it's more sinister than this as well. I think... so. When you have a big cyber hate event, what happens? Everyone piles on the platform. So it's actually part of their revenue model mm, that yeah. they are making money from our misery. So when somebody piles on Sarah, great. Twitter is delighted because they're making money from it. So these companies are not going to fix it on their own. They're not. And, I mean, you've got like Morris Blackburn. Um, the lawyer Josh Bornstein has been a very – he actually was the target of a terrorist troll who's now in jail who caused a terrorist attack in Garland, Texas, and had another one planned here in Melbourne and another one in Kansas. Um, and Josh is at the forefront. He's actually acted pro bono for lots of cyber hate targets. He's saying we've got to legislate a duty of care to the public because these companies are not going to do it on their own. And, I mean, what they've done in Germany is interesting in terms of legislation. I think they've gone too far. But... Uh, the German government, it's got a, like, you know how German names have like a thousand letters in it? it the legislation has a very long name. But they instituted this um, uh, legislation where companies will get fined 50 million euros if they didn't take cyber hate down in 24 hours. Now, what do you think those companies are doing? Taking cyber hate down. Um, it, it's gone too far and lots of people have claimed that it's actually cooling um, free speech. 
but the but what it says to me is governments can act decisively if they want to. Maybe this legislation wasn't quite right, but they can. I I, I agree. I think what I what I worry about is that unless the government, unless politicians, and they need to hear it from people like yourselves as um, constituents and voters, um, demand that we're not just talking about um, uh, those who want to incite terrorism. I think it's very easy in this context right now in Australia for Scott Morrison to stand up and say he's going to be tough on terrorism and that means online. Meanwhile, um, these other issues that face particularly women uh, online and uh, kids, I think will get it, it'll get put over here. Um, actually, we need, uh, in this conversation that is evolving, we need to be saying actually this type of hatred that is increasingly um, uh, posted towards women um, needs to be tackled. And um, out of Christchurch, we saw the Prime Minister come out and say, oh, we're going to do something about this, but not once did he talk about the safety of women. No. Mm. Um, so we have to actually really make sure that is not dropped off, dropped off the agenda. The, so... Um Women and men, the statistics are really interesting from our data. So 44% of women um, and 34% of men have experienced cyber hate. And people say to me, like, oh, it's nearly the same. Like, what are you whining about? And there are some, you know, like Josh, very, very um, severe cyber hate targets of men. But the, what our data showed is that the attacks against women are different in nature. So men get attacked about politics and ethnicity the most and women get attacked more in every other category. So um, it's more sexual, it's more violent and sustained. So it's rape threats, death threats, it's image-based abuse, it's all that stuff and it's much more sustained, which you would know. <laughs> I mean, you've got life experience of that. So it looks the same on the surface but it's not the same. Mm -hmm. One of the most terrible... Oh, sorry, Prue. And maybe I'm a sceptic but... I feel like part of the hesitation legislatively is a lot of our politicians, you know, a lot of United States politicians are on the minor to medium end of being trolls themselves. Mm. You know, we're increasingly yeah. governed by the politics you know, of fear. Um, and <laughs> do you know, Maxine, um, so I saw Malcolm Turnbull at Safe Internet Day last year and he said, you know, the internet's making everybody more aggressive. And I was like, have you seen yourself in Parliament lately, dude? So... <laughs> I actually asked them, no, they, the trolls, the white supremacist trolls that I was embedded with, they love Donald Trump. Mm. They see him as their troll in chief mm. and they love that he lies. Mm. They love it. They, they emulate it and they see it as a green light. So when you are having someone slut shaming you in parliament and then that triggers predator trolling against you, um, we need to be clear that it didn't start on the internet. Like I was on a panel with Osman from um, ABC Live and he has had death threats and he's been doxxed. Um, that started with the media. That started with uh, Andrew Bolt writing about him and calling him all kinds of things in his column and that was a green light for predator trolls. When we're seeing the rising tide of xenophobia around the world, on top of all this with politicians supporting it, the media supporting it, the great houses of power in society supporting xenophobia. Maxine, how do we, as powerless individuals, particularly women of colour, fight back against that? Um, you know, I think it's almost impossible. Um, you know, I agree with what, what Sarah said. You can't let trolls disrupt you from, from doing what you love. 
but you know it also depends on you know I have friends I know who don't you know I can't put a workout this year because I just don't want to I don't want to deal with the the pushback against it um I think it is through um the power of voting mm. and the power of you know letting um legislators letting members of parliament know that this is happening that it's not okay that we want you to do something about it um individually i think it's really really difficult and it gets exhausting to just keep mm. reporting things and having no and it's also a um you know that process where you report things and nothing happens eventually you stop reporting things you you develop this um resilience and so the bar just becomes ever higher Thank you so much for coming to listen to these stellar experts on trolling. Round of applause for our wonderful panel. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Mitis Festival 2019. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronmitisfestival.com.